The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Navy Federal has a mission to put members first by making their financial goals the priority. Receive a lifetime of membership benefits to help you and your family accomplish your life missions, like a full suite of financial products designed to fit your needs, 24-7 live support, and access to over 300 branches on or near military bases. Visit NavyFederal.org for more information. Call 1-888-842-6328 or download the Navy Federal Credit Union app. Message and data rates may apply. Danny, we we have a trade to... Uh, 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 I, I guess we do have a trade. But let's talk first about the abortive trade that was. It went down late Friday night at the very hour that, that Trevor Ariza was first eligible to be traded on December 15th. Yeah, I mean, so so it came out and the funniest, the, the, I mean, the rollout of this insanity made it so much more fun. And basically, so the deal that was reported was... Trevor Reza going from Phoenix to Washington, Austin Rivers going from Washington to Phoenix, and then Kelly Oubre going from Washington to to Memphis, and then Memphis sending Wayne Selden and A. Brooks. Which Brooks? Who's Brooks? We'll figure that out later. And then Memphis was also sending a second and then maybe a potential, I guess it was probably a significantly protected second round pick. Both of those were going to Washington, not to Phoenix. And then as I kind of jokingly speculated on Twitter shortly before the fact, I'm like, it would be funny if the reason that this hit a scuttlebutt was because they miss the signs, mixed signals or whatever on the Brookses. And that is exactly what happened. Memphis was convinced that they were had that they were sending Marshawn Brooks. Phoenix was convinced that they were receiving Dylan Brooks. And that led to the deal completely falling apart. So would this deal have actually made any sense for the Suns with Marshawn Brooks in it? Like that's the biggest thing that I go back to here. And obviously everyone had their recriminations and statements and Memphis said, oh, we only ever talked to Washington about this. And we made it clear to them that it was Marshawn and Washington leaked. No, no, no. Like it, it was Dylan Brooks the whole time and Phoenix leaked that Robert Sarver and Robert Para had had discussions uh, about Dylan Brooks. Uh, the Memphis statement was very interesting because it said as it related to this deal. And so that is not really a denial that Para and Sarver had talked earlier in the week about Dylan Brooks, but maybe as related to some other deal. And perhaps there was an assumption that, well, because we were talking about Dylan Brooks earlier in the week, that obviously it would be Dylan Brooks. But frankly, I mean, you know, Memphis in theory wouldn't have, wouldn't have agreed to the trade. You know, I think there were, it was probably just miscommunication. But if I had to guess whose responsibility that miscommunication was, I am going to guess that it was some Washington and some Memphis. But Memphis probably should have been able to figure it out because this trade wouldn't have made any sense 
for Phoenix if Dylan Brooks weren't in it. You and I both like Wayne Selden quite a bit, but Wayne Selden would have been an insufficient return as the primary piece in a trade for Trevor Reza. Because remember, even the picks involved in this weren't going to Phoenix in the reported structure. Well, of the I, deal. I'm not saying it's insufficient, and, but I think it, I, I do believe his market value would have been higher than that. I would hope so. And, and yeah, I, I think it. W- I think it personally, I'll speak for myself that it would have been insufficient for me. I'm a little bit lower on on Selden, especially because. I don't particularly love his fit with this Suns roster with what they have right now. You know, he's he's just kind of a different fit and Selden's going into restricted free agency for himself. Now, restricted free agency for a guy who's lower in the pecking order is actually a more desirable thing in certain facets because it's just more likely that the market dries up and so you can get them at a, at a decent value. So that is yeah. is an element Super to consider Super low qualifying offer too. Right, 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 right. And that was that's a, a practical concern. We'll see if Phoenix keeps Kelly Oubre, but that is a, a, a factor in terms of this from Memphis's perspective, though now obviously they're not getting it. And in Phoenix's with Kelly Oubre, is that as somebody who's higher on the list because of his draft pedigree and positional scarcity, those kind of arguments, even if he is a flawed and often frustrating player, that it's more likely that he gets overpaid in an, in an offer sheet than that Wayne Selden does. Yeah, and Oubre is just a head more visibility and the idea behind dylan brooks uh, being in there is that he has a, a minimum salary this year a minimum salary next year that's non-guaranteed guarantee date of july 5th and then to be a restricted free agent after that he's was a second round pick last year played i think the most minutes of any rookie last year i want to say uh on a tanking grizz team and, and has been out for most of this season yep. with a, an mcl but i mean he's 22 and like to me, he's like not that sexy. I mean, he profiles as a likely bench guy, you know, a, a rotation guy. Perhaps he shot thirty six percent from downtown last year. Has some ability to run a pick and roll, work with the ball in his hands as maybe a secondary, probably more likely a tertiary guy. Not going to finish at the rim. Probably not really going to be an efficient two point shooter. And defensively, he's tenacious, but is a little slower than average for his position. So, I mean, that's an interesting question that I had is just, is Oubre or is Dylan Brooks a, a better asset? Did Phoenix do better in this version of the trade, the new version of the trade, in which they basically swapped Ariza for Oubre uh, straight up rather than getting Brooks and Selden? I guess Dylan Brooks and Selden, those two guys might be, a, I might like them a little bit more than Oubre, but I think I like Oubre as a proposition better than Brooks going forward, except for what you said about Oubre kind of having a little more visibility and, you know, being more likely to get overpaid. And remember this 2019 offseason is one where there are more teams with cap space than there are players yeah. worthy of but also half the league are free agents. i think that's one thing too that we're kind of it's also true um but but a lot yeah. i think i think more likely to get squeezed out actually are gonna because there's a lot of these teams with cap space are bad teams who may not get in on the the highest free agents and so those teams aren't really going to be interested in veteran unrestricted free agents you know so i think the restricted free agent market may not take quite as much of a hit relative to past years you know obviously restricted free agents are always going to be uh, a little bit limited in terms of what they can get because they're restricted and the timing issues and the match rights but relative to past years i think the bottom end of the veteran free agent market will be impacted more than the restricted free agent market will be i also think that because he's more of a forward rather than a two which i i see personally see selden and brooks more as twos than anything else Ubre brings something a little bit different i mean we've already seen the marquis chris 
experiment, crash and burn. Dragon Bender's basically there too. And they have TJ Warren. They have other guys. Josh Jackson is, you know, maybe more of a three than a two. I, I still haven't sorted out what I think his position is. So I think that there is a place in Phoenix's rotation, especially with Ryan Anderson already marginalized, to see what Kelly Oubre can do. And maybe another team really wants him while they, they meaning Phoenix, cannot aggregate him in a trade because of the deadline they can move him in a in a different trade it just has and his salary is low yeah. enough that you can make a and lot that of that seems to be the speculation can fit into a trade exception that seems whatever to be the speculation that they're yeah. going to do that rather than taking on another young player and you know with bridges with warren with josh jackson i would be very interested to see uh if josh jackson keeps getting any minutes at all now or, or if they go back uh, go to Ubre and jackson is just totally on the bench here yeah and austin rivers could get minutes for them as well yeah, i mean he is no, he's not a part of their future, but I think he can be a part of their present. And I assume that when, you know, now that Devin Booker's back, that they could end up doing some Rivers and, and Booker lineups together. And that ties in with something with Austin Rivers that has been a criticism of mine for a long time of his, which is that he's not an on-ball guy. He's he's better off-ball. You know, he he thinks he's better creating than he is. And I mean, if he could finish at the rim, he would be, he'd be more valuable, but that has never really come... So maybe he can be a part of a part of things for them and they can see kind of how Devin Booker fares in that kind of a role, which is slightly different, you know, kind of a one and a half type of player, which will be interesting and with Ubre. I've wanted to see him. He, his stats the last couple of years when he plays with John Wall have actually been pretty solid. And I think the Wizards second unit has been such disaster over the last couple of years. And, you know, Ubre hasn't helped that a lot, but he's also a forward and, you know, a complimentary player. That's not really his job to fix all that kind of stuff. So I want to see, you know, whether it's with Phoenix or somewhere else, if he can get into some sort of like competent situation and be nice to get to see that before free agency and Ubre is still young too I mean so this is his age 23 season he I believe is only like a month older than Dylan Brooks and you think about just how how their experiences have been very different because he came straight out of Kansas and really kind of sat on had that small role with the Wizards for a couple of years versus Dylan Brooks who started Oregon because he stayed longer so we'll see what opportunity what opportunity they get and as a value proposition though this gets compelling for Phoenix in terms of trading Ubre because theoretically Washington one of the signs of this trade to get into their perspective of this this is a pretty clear sign that they weren't anticipating re-signing Ubre because he's a restricted free agent and match rights and all that and Trevor Reza is an unrestricted free agent yeah and it's part of the sell uh, for Washington was that they think they can re-sign Ariza if they couldn't afford Ubre I don't see them necessarily affording Ariza unless he plays poorly <laughs> in which case probably neither he nor they uh, would want to continue the relationship uh, and they wanted full bird rights on him but they would have non-bird rights they could pay him uh, up to 18 million next year but again they, their tax structure doesn't really fit that but they do get better on the floor this year i think this is going to help them make a playoff push we've seen the hornets fall off we've seen the pistons fall off so that's become a little more realistic they completely housed the lakers tonight as well as john wall had an incredible game with the 40 points and 14 assists um so I, I think Ariza does help them this year. Now, now, whether that really matters that much, whether they could have gotten something a little more future-focused for Ubre, you know, I'm not sure. I, I don't think Ubre was getting you a first-round pick somewhere, especially with a team who's like, oh, yeah, we want to give up a first-round pick and then re-sign him to a big market contract. You know, you can call that kind of the Terry Rozier conundrum where it's like, all right, you know, this guy, he's in the last year of his rookie deal. He might be even close to a starter-level player, but do you want to slightly overpay him in restricted free agency and have to give up an asset to get him? Um, but anyway, so I, I don't know that they could have done better than this, you know, 
in terms of getting a, a future player. So, you know, Ariza is probably the guy on the trade market realistically who could have helped the most. And I'd be interested to know, you know, what else was out there for Phoenix, you know, would the Rockets have been interested with the, you know, their first round pick, you know, maybe they weren't willing to give that up with them struggling this way. The Lakers, there were all those discussions with them. We were all over that, that that was almost certainly not going to happen. My guess, and it's very interesting that his agent is Aaron Mintz because Mintz had those public spats a little bit with the Lakers in terms of Julius Randle. Not wanting to go back there with Paul George, not even getting a meeting. So maybe this is a little bit of a peace offering from Mintz. Maybe it's just a reason really wanted to go there and Mintz was leaking to Woj that he was trying to get him to the Lakers just so that it could look like he was doing something. But the Lakers weren't going to give up any asset of note. You know, KCP in a second wasn't going to get it done uh, or KCP and fee or Isaac Bonger or whatever wasn't going to get it done. And you know sarver supposedly didn't want to send him to the lakers so but he definitely the lakers i don't think ever offered enough to force sarver to make a decision you know the way he did with the steve nash trade which actually worked out great for the suns so he was never going to go to la it seemed like unless they put more in the deal which we based on everything we know about them they weren't going to do uh and so you know getting Ubre for the suns is you know i i mean i guess that's like a decent return for this uh just get a chance to see well so i i I think their bigger loss here was it doesn't sound like phoenix was willing to take on money for next season and that would have been the way to to bridge the gap here and so well as we've talked about though who is the team that was going to do that at this point once uh once the Cavs made that trade with the bucks who else was trying to get off of 2019 money at this point you know nobody really comes to mind for you but you feel free to disagree so the the hilarious one is houston yeah yeah i mean have night be involved again i i thought of that actually well they they would have they yeah so the deal that i had thought of was involving probably because you can't they couldn't reacquire night but theoretically they could have acquired somebody else who makes similar money like jan mahinmi or mozgov or one of those type of guys like theoretically if orlando could have done night for mozgov sure i mean i mean sorry if if orlando could have done that they'd be like yeah i'm on board with that like they get they get a, a roll of the dice with a guy they could have made something like that work and there's a couple of reasons why I think this is is notable for Phoenix. So one is when they signed Devin Booker, they lost a bunch of cap space, about $10 million. And they're also now it's abundantly clear that unless they get totally hosed in the lottery, they're going to get a really high draft pick. And a really high draft pick is a wonderful thing, but it comes with a big price tag and that reduces their cap space immediately. So even if they don't get the Milwaukee pick, they're still getting a pretty big hit out of it. And so my instinct is that they can get more value out of selling that space than doing that. And now with Trevor Reza gone, that is much, much harder to do. Theoretically, they could with Austin Rivers, but again, the aggregation restrictions and something else. So maybe they can have their cake and eat it too here. Maybe, 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 but I don't expect, I think this is more aligned in sand of, okay, this is going to be their team on those type of guys. Maybe they make a move with somebody else on the roster. And there they could have gotten the first round pick, which would have been really interesting if they take on some money. But you're right, it was a narrower field to be sure. So Ariza, I think he helps the Wizards a lot. Uh, He'll probably come in as their starting four. He is, although a skinny guy, has succeeded in guarding some of the bigger guys. Now, can he guard Giannis? Uh, You know, I I think he could probably guard Ben Simmons. Okay, you know, who they might match up with in the first round. You know, I think he's another option against any of Boston's wing guys uh, where, you know, like against Jason Tatum, I would like him quite a bit. Or Otto Porter, you know, just doesn't quite have the strength or the athleticism 
rhythm or the intensity to really make guys uncomfortable the way I think Ariza can do with some guys. And then just Ariza is a 35% three-point shooter. Ubre was kind of 31%. He was more aggressive this year, although to the point where I think some veiled comments were made about his level of aggression this year as they did not reach a, a extension with him. He felt like he was playing for a contract. Uh, Ariza was a good vet, someone that John Wall respected so i think they're going to get a lot better here i mean i think there are definitely teams who maybe should have tried to get in on this that could have used him more well yeah that right and i think that's actually the biggest losers in this deal are all the teams that thought maybe they could get him for nothing as a buyout guy because and what what should have become clear once the Lakers stuff was out there was that phoenix was not going to let him go for nothing that they wanted to get something they know where they are at least relative to the playoffs this year and so then as houston as some of these other teams, you have to recalibrate. You have to go, okay, well, he's the, especially for Houston, he's the best guy on the market for what they need at the forward spots. I mean, there just aren't that many guys that hit the buyout market there. If you want a backup center, if you want, you know, like a depth guard, those players are going to be available, but forwards are generally pretty hard to come by because teams don't want to let him go. And once the, it became pretty clear that the asking price wasn't that high and he was going to go somewhere, it, you know, I think some teams should have really should have raised things a little bit because there's value in having Trevor Reza. He is imperfect, but he, he can help teams. And there is still this crazy chance because the Wizards are still 12 and 18 that they fall out of it far enough that they buy him out. Yeah. You know, because I think that won't happen before the trade deadline. But I don't think you want to roll the dice on that as one of these teams like the Lakers, like Houston, that could really benefit from Ariza. Though maybe there was just no middle ground with those teams specifically. And it's fair that that's a possibility. Yeah, Philly is could have desperately used him as well. Now, what would, could they have thrown in? Uh, yeah, I mean, they have all their own first round picks going forward. That's maybe a little aggressive for Ariza. But, you know, we had talked about Marco Fultz, but there are reports that uh, from Gambo, who is a direct line into Robert Sarver, that no, they weren't interested in Marco Fultz. Seems insane to me. I think they should have, that that could have been a nice package. But maybe now Philly, with this report uh, from Keith Pompey, it's like, oh no, we can't just, uh, like, we only would trade Fultz for like a good first round pick, not even just a first rounder. So maybe they, maybe Philly would have felt a reason wasn't enough value, which seems crazy to me at this point, uh, given where Fultz is at. Uh, we'll talk more about that report in the Philly section. Um, so we'll see what happens now to Washington and to Kelly Oubre in Phoenix. I, I mean, I think this is a good fit for Washington. It wouldn't have been at the top five or eight destinations for him um well here's here's an amazing one for me it wouldn't be in the top three destinations for me for reason of teams he has previously played on <laughs> like the rockets the lakers and the pelicans all would have been more interesting with trevor yeah Reza the pels are another are. one but that he will help them. really used him too right i mean you could have said maybe and again who knows right like solomon hill and a first rounder for Ariza, you know to dump some some cash for next year get better with a Ariza, and but who knows whether the pels wanted to do that they're struggling who knows whether phoenix again was like too worried about taking out money for next year which seems insane to me because like oh yeah if you had this big free agent score you always could have stretched solomon hill as well uh and the wizards as well you mentioned mahimi right like i don't think the wizards they wanted to get better this year but i don't think they wanted to give up a, a first round pick as well you know because it probably would have been like mahimi in a first going back for a reason maybe that's not even enough for for mahimi either um to to have to take on that money so anyway fascinating trade we'll see what ends up happening i I think these teams are kind of stuck a little bit after the trade went down it also wouldn't surprise me given how quickly this came together like right at december 15th if when ariza signed there phoenix didn't say to him hey you know what 
like if it's not working out and we fall out of contention we will move you at the earliest possible opportunity like they may have made that commitment to him and maybe that's part of why this happened when it did yeah it very well could i want to go through their fundamentals because otherwise we're going to forget 12 and 18 what is washington three and four since the last 15 and 60 their negative four net rating puts them 25th in the nba they are 18th in offense 26th in defense and 538 now projects them after that dominating win over the lakers to have 39 wins which puts them in the playoffs it puts them in a tie for seventh in the eastern conference 65 percent odds of making the playoffs in theory yeah it's unbelievable and i mean we can talk we'll probably talk about this at a few different points but the bottom of the east is if playoff picture is so uninspiring that we could see some of these teams turn into surprise buyers if they think that being the seven or eight seed in the east is substantially better than not making the playoffs and for most teams even if they're you know armchair quarterbacks that think that shouldn't be true for most ownership groups for most general managers it's completely true that that is significantly preferable well, and when you're talking and about ernie grunfeld is obviously yeah, one when of you're them. talking about Washington, Charlotte, and Detroit. Yeah, I think they'd fall into that category. Um, let's turn to the Raptors now, 23 and nine, but only three and five, uh, amazingly, in their last eight, despite two really ho- high profile wins. I mean, what a roller coaster ride it, it's been for them. They had uh, that loss to the Bucks uh, a week ago now uh, that we talked about. Then, you know, Kyle Lowry is in the worst slump of his career. Then they get a back to back two games without Kawhi Leonard. They wax the Clippers and the Warriors on back to back nights with Lowry going back to play amazingly well. We'll talk about their win over the Warriors momentarily, which we were at. And then Lowry suffered a thigh contusion. Jonas Valanciunas suffered a really ugly dislocated left thumb. He had to have surgery. He's going to be in a cast for the next four weeks. Uh, And that was against the Warriors. So then they lose to Portland. They lose to a really hobbled Denver team tonight. And so they finished this road trip two and two in a week's worth of games, despite, you know, having two incredibly impressive wins, you know, two of the most impressive wins all year, given the personnel that's available. You know, it's actually, it's in the aggregate, a little bit disappointing. And, you know, they've come back to the pack now in terms of they had a nice lead for the number one seed you know less than two weeks ago and now they're right back in the thick of it with milwaukee and uh, don't look now but boston is pretty hard on their heels uh, too yeah right now in terms of the loss column which is what i look for with good teams the raptors are at nine the bucks are at nine the celtics are at 11 the sixers are at 11 and the pacers are at 10 so i mean they're all right in that mix and i still think the raptors at full strength are the best of those teams or you know full strength with their starters because we should also mention that not only did kyle lowry miss the game with thigh contusion the nuggets lost fred van vliet and pascal siakam were both out with back issues siakam had a rough fall in the portland game there yeah in the portland game i think it was in like the third quarter and so he he was out we haven't really heard a, a, a real timeline on those guys yet but they don't play again until wednesday so maybe that rest can do can do them some good and then they also have a game against cleveland they could do what toronto has already become comfortable with of sitting guys that lowry sat against cleveland like two weeks ago maybe they sit some of those guys and then they're they're all the way back and so let's get though to the to their win at oracle against the golden state warriors it was dominating and i i did a um Wait, did I do the podcast with Slater on this one? Or no, no, no. I was, I was Monday because I know I had Wednesday. Wednesday. Okay, so what was so striking to me about this game was how 
Toronto played with purpose. Like they, when they pushed the ball down the floor, they did it with a sense of urgency. They played much more aggressive defense and they looked fantastic out there, even without Kawhi on the floor and with Valanchunas basically only playing in the first half. And then he got hurt with that horrifying dislocated thumb. Yeah. And even Greg Monroe came in and was beasting the Warriors second unit in the second half. And, and the Raptors did it. I mean, ultimately without shooting incredibly well from three, 32%. And the Warriors had a, a nightmare shooting game, six out of 26 only 23 percent, but only getting up 26 attempts is very low Steph Curry did ultimately go two for eight but he was three for 12 I mean three made field goals for Steph Curry with the role that he'd been on I think my number one takeaway if these teams match up is man did Fred Van Vliet do an awesome job on Steph Curry in this game yeah I mean he was picking him up early on the floor playing with a lot of aggressiveness also when Curry was off ball he was doing a much better job than most counterparts do of preventing him from getting to his spots getting open and that short circuits a lot of what the Warriors do you and I have had the criticism before with Golden State that you can take them out of what they want to do because the ball ends up in everyone else's hands so much and I think Toronto gives that argument a lot more heft because the Raptors and I you know in other years you could think about this as being Danny Green as the ball denier but I thought Van Vliet did a spectacular job of making life hard on Steph Curry yeah and he just he's strong he's able to wedge his way between those ball screens when Curry was uh, able to go off ball screens which again they don't feature as much especially in the regular season Van Vliet was able to get right on his hip and then the other way to know when Steph is uncomfortable is when he starts missing layups you know usually he's a pretty good finisher and there's usually so much space that he's able to get open and he was really rushing some inside attempts you could tell that he was really feeling the defensive pressure and really the only good game by anyone in a Warriors uniform offensively was KD who the Raptors haven't had an answer for in in either of the two matchups this year even when Kawhi did play and I thought the Raptors did a great job of not guarding Draymond Green he was 0 for 3 on threes and none of them were close and he just stopped shooting them after a time uh and so it'd be interesting to see I mean I really hope that this ends up being the finals matchup and we'll see how healthy these teams are at the end it's kind of sad that we won't get to see these guys match up again and we never got to saw the see them all match up at full strength but I think Danny Green has always been a really good matchup on Clay Thompson you know he did a good job on him then they even just you know broke out a few things right like Danny Green posted up on Steph Curry a couple of times one of which resulted in a completely ridiculous left-handed hook that was a, a terrible shot uh but yeah I mean you have to be very pleased that as the Raptors they just they got to get a little bit more consistent here. I mean we we see them play really well against a lot of these good teams and then hey you know they've actually lost nine games you know it seems like they and their 7.7 net rating is very good but it's not like you know just a ridiculous 60 win automatic type of good so you know they'll should be in the high 50s I'm guessing especially with the amount of resting that they're gonna do so it's kind of interesting now for the Raptors really it seems like they're the favorites but I do think getting the number one seed is important to them but how much they decide to prioritize resting Kawhi resting Danny Green who's gonna need a break at some point Lowry is always a, a guy who can end up playing too many minutes they've had Van Fleet has had injury concerns how conservative are they going to be or how much are they going to push for that number one seed it'd be a very interesting question in particular i'm really worried about them getting home court advantage over the celtics who, who obviously are playing much better now yeah and we we saw last year how, how much better the celtics were at home than on the road i mean in all of their playoff series that was really notable and one really good thing for i, I just happen to look at this now at the end is that the end of toronto season has a lot of really bad teams like teams that might not be trying 
trying too hard there. And so maybe they can kind of have their cake and eat it too of, you know, if they're playing the Bulls, or they're playing the Knicks, then, I mean, the Knicks are feisty, but let's say that they're not really pushing too hard then. Maybe they can discretionarily sit some of their guys and still win those games. And that would be, I think, the best way to, to resolve this if it's possible. Another way in which they are beating the Warriors, they are actually the number one team in the NBA on mid-rangers, although they take far fewer mid-rangers than the Warriors, uh, 47%. Uh, and they use the mid-ranger to great effect in those wins over the Clippers and Warriors. And a lot of that is the only guys who take them are the guys who are really good at them on that team. That's Lowry a little bit, but mostly Ibaka and Kawhi. Let's turn now to Philly. They sit at 20 and 11 at a nice win over Cleveland today as Jimmy Butler made his return from a mild groin injury. 2.7 net rating is eighth in the NBA, 11th in offense, 15th in defense. They project for 53 wins, which would be fourth in the conference playoff odds over 99 percent let's talk about that keith pompey piece uh, on trading markel fultz supposedly the sixers don't want to part ways with fultz i'm quoting him now unless a first round pick is packaged in a deal for him and they're not talking about a least late first rounder either and a lot of what pompey went into here is basically that they're concerned about the optics number one of how much they, they moved up to get him and that's hilarious to me because it should just if they have to trade him, like it's Brian Colangelo's fault and he's gone now. But apparently the Sixers ownership group is very concerned about the optics. But of, oh, number one, hey, we gave all this up and now we're going to move him for nothing. And then B, or, or not nothing, but very little. And then B, oh my God, what if he plays really well after we move him? Well, yeah, he might, but that's completely meaningless if he was never going to play well for you, which it seems pretty unlikely that he's going to. Now, I might want to just wait and see, you know, whether this thoracic outlet thing and really ends up making a difference, you know, and whether he comes back. But, you know, if he misses six weeks, as is kind of expected, that's the middle of January and you don't really have much time at that point. And, you know, he's also just one of the few matching salaries they have available to make a move at this point, which is also a concern if they want to throw some assets in and get back players who can help them who aren't just kind of you know back of the rotation buyout kind of guys I mean they need a starter you know Wilson Chandler is not good enough as their fifth starter and you know Chandler even uh you know is more of a bench guy if even a quality bench guy the way he's been playing lately so uh it's tough I mean I still if I had to guess it's going to be that Fultz you know does not become a star and it's very unlikely you know you're making and maybe even the fact that he has this diagnosis could increase his trade value just a little bit because it's like oh no there's a reason maybe there's more reason i think that he'll actually manage to rediscover his shot if he comes back and it's clear that he hasn't rediscovered his shot then the value goes down right they've been through this with okafor they've been through this with noel where it's like oh no his, his trade value is really low we can't trade him now it's like well guess what like the situation that he's in his trade value is not going to go up right and the Pompey's piece did a nice job kind of talking about this, like, oh, Marco Fultz, you know, the other team can sell him on being a former number one pick. It's like, yeah, but there's all this intervening evidence and you're not going to get number one overall pick prices for a guy who has all of this other baggage. That's not the way this works. And also Fultz at $10 million for next year, that is a pretty significant cost. And if Philly is trying to not take on money for next year, then that's, you know, that limits the field because there are some teams that just aren't that interested in taking on Fultz right now and adding extra money to their books. They also have a, you know, he has that option for the for the fourth year, which is very lucrative. And so then you get into those decisions. And like, there was something else that was in the piece and, and I'll quote Pompey again, because I think I think it's good to get it, the wording exactly right here. It's a, and the operative phrase here is the thought, which is how this starts. The thought is that the Sixers will have more serious discussions once it becomes apparent certain teams will be eliminated from the postseason, 
those teams will look to unload desirable players in the final year of their contracts in exchange to take a look at, look at Fultz. So again, paralleling the, oh, it's not even just a first-round pick, it's a desirable one. Not only are they going to get, get out of Marco Fultz's money, but they're going to get a desirable player on an expiring contract for him. And that just seems, it's possible. I'm not going to say it's impossible, but it, it seems rosy and unrealistic to me considering what we have seen from Markel Fultz, which is shaky. And yeah, he has this pedigree, but we don't know. Like the teams are, you're not trading for Markel Fultz on draft night, like the six or two couple nights before the draft, like Sigerton. You're trading for him after all this other shit has happened. Looking back on that trade, if really, you remember what the trade was initially, it was that Lakings pick, right? So it was that 20. 20- 18 Lakers pick if it fell between two and five well the Lakers ended up getting I think the the 10th pick which eventually became Mikhail Bridges and hilariously ended up back in Phoenix's hands after being rotted all over the country and now the Kings who uh, continue I mean they had a really nice win in Dallas tonight you know the Kings are looking like it's gonna be a low lottery pick at best so if Fultz had only just worked out I mean even with Tatum ending up being the guy that he has been but just in terms of the value, one in three, or, or, or number one for three, and what's going to end up being, you know, probably the ninth or the eleventh pick or something two years later. That's actually great value, just in terms of the picks. It's just, you know, it's Marco Fultz and Jason Tatum, <laughs> so it doesn't matter where they're picked. Um, let's talk a little bit about how they're playing on the floor here. Uh, their offense has a couple of indicators that are surprising me number one is despite the fact that they have all these guys who can't shoot they're 24th in percentage of shots at the rim they also have joel Embiid. now some of joel Embiid's shots at the rim become free throws and they get a fair number of free throw attempts uh and they also shoot really well at the rim. that's one thing that simmons has really improved this year uh overall the sixers shoots 30 or sorry 67 percent at the rim which is up near the top of the league and 37 percent from three so that's fifth and sixth respectively but they're also not taking that many threes as well and so they're not taking that many shots at the rim they're not taking that many threes but like who are like the awesome mid-range shooters on this team i I guess butler is starting to come around to some degree um and by the way those numbers don't really change very much with butler in the full i know he's only been there for half the season but um they at least are number two getting to the foul line uh that will remain um and then their defensive numbers are not you know there's some kind of troubling things there too in terms of you know are they going to get better are they going to get to you know being a top five defense as we saw them last year yeah i mean the drop off in defense is, is is pretty fascinating to me they it's they're four points per hundred possessions more giving i guess let's say but they're pretty close in defensive rebounding and effective field goal percentage defense to where they were last year and they're forcing fewer turnovers but the shot distribution has changed a little bit so they're giving up more shots at the rim and most of the change has come from those long twos now that's not great you never want to see that because shots at the rim have a higher value than shots at from mid-range not only in terms of going in a higher proportion of time but also possibility of fouls and foul trouble and everything that comes from that but it is worth noting that philly had just one of those pristine shot distributions for opponents last year you know lots of mid-range very little at the rim not too much from three and so it went from being amazing to being pretty good so you can deal with that but they've also you know there there are elements in terms of good luck like guy teams aren't making corner threes on them and 
generally speaking, they've been getting pretty lucky on mid-range shots. And those general, I don't, my, my philosophy has always been that you can, with mid-range shots, it's a little bit more kind of eye of the beholder. Some teams can make shots hard, hard or difficult, but it's, it's a little bit different. And so I'm, I'm just going to see how their opponent mid-range shooting goes. But then the last point I want to bring up is they have been an absolute disaster defensively when Embiid has not been on the floor. So they've taken a little step back. They've taken a little step back with, with Embiid out there, you know, one, a 99 offensive rate to 103. And that's going from insane to really good. That's last year versus this year. You're saying yes. Yeah. But then this year without Embiid, if you use NBA.com's measure, 110 defensive rating without Embiid. And if you go to cleaning the glasses measure, 115.5 defensive rating without Embiid on the floor. And both of those numbers are immensely troubling for a team that cannot play all of their playoff minutes with Joel Embiid on the floor. Yeah. I mean, and to be clear, what that number was cleaning the glasses is that in non garbage time with Embiid off the floor, 115.5. And Amir Johnson has been horrendous this year defensively, just. He used to be a pretty solid pick and roll defender. That is completely dissipated now. He looks slow. He's missing rotation. He's making mistakes. Uh, then Mike Muscala is really overwhelmed defensively at either power position, but at the five, I mean, he, he's just not strong enough. You know, he gets beaten up inside. He'll be there for verticality, but you'll see him just get knocked backwards, and guys will will score over him. Even guards can kind of knock him backwards. Uh, and then at the four, you know, he's way too slow to do any any switching. At least they've gotten rid of the Muscala and Amir together. But and then part of the problem with Embiid being off the floor too is now you've got Muscala at five, but you also you know especially with Butler missing some time periodically and they're playing lineups with like Korkmaz at the three Reddick Shamit Simmons at the four Mescal at the five I mean like of course you're not going to stop anyone with that lineup and Bodner uh, on his latest pod was all over this uh he and Rich Hoffman talking about how they just they don't have enough good players right now and that doesn't mean the Butler trade was a bad trade they got a guy who can be a difference maker but they just they have to fill this out and yeah they're able to beat the Cavs with some of these bench units but uh that's the that's the Cavs um let's move now to Orlando they sit at 14 and 15 three and three since the last 15 and 60 it's been a, an interesting odyssey for them uh they are actually one of the luckier teams in the league right now because they have a negative 2.4 net rating which is 24th in the league so it's actually pretty good that they're close to 500 26th in offense that's really rough defense is 13th that's i think they should be really proud of that they project for 36 wins which is actually a, a step up from where they were before that would put them ninth in the conference that's not that far they have 37 percent chance at the playoffs per 538 uh they won two games in, yeah well right, let's I was going to say, let's talk about why their defensive rating is much higher. It's because of those two abysmal games in Mexico City. Ugly, ugly, ugly basketball winning against the Chicago Bulls in the game that kind of went back and forth late. And then against the Utah Jazz in one of one of the worst games I've watched all year. And some of that is, you know, the travel. Mexico City is further away. It's not a common, you know, NBA city. Obviously, it was only these two games that were played there. Also, it's at a high altitude. And I don't know this for a fact, but I believe the air there is is not particularly good. So you have a lot of those things, but the teams just looked like they were in molasses in both of those games. And that didn't help Orlando's offense, but it it sure as hell helped their defense. And Utah was just looked like they were running in mud. And so, but, but, you know, Orlando, they kept competing. Vooch had some nice, had some nice moments as well. Fournier had some drives and everything else like that, but they did get those two wins to move, you know, into the playoff picture, at least for the time being. And something that I wanted to look into with them is I, I talked about this as being one of the definitive questions for them this season. I hadn't really 
really thought about it much was how they're splitting up the big men and what combinations with the young bigs. So I'm not including Vooch in this because he's his own thing. He's a restricted free or sorry, an unrestricted free agent in the summer of 2019. So I wanted to kind of see how those guys were looking. Yeah. And uh, by far the most effective of the pairings, Gordon and Isaac, although we have not seen Isaac play basically any center at all. I still think they should give that a shot because uh, uh, versus some bench units in particular, maybe that don't have too burly of a center because they've just been getting completely crushed whenever bomba plays negative 15.4 net rating for bomba and so not a surprise that with gordon and bomba they're at negative 11.2 and with isaac and bomba they're at negative 20.4 uh and they playing all three of the young bigs together just haven't really done that at all 16 uh, possessions whether you want to call isaac and gordon a big is perhaps uh, debatable um what else can you make uh, of these guys uh, offensively obviously at 26th that's where they've struggled this season so one of the most notable elements of orlando's team and this should not be a surprise especially to those people who watch them is that they do not get to the free throw line i mean their their free throw attempt rate for the season is just catastrophically low they're so they're at 15.3 percent of their of their shots so you know 15 free throws per 100 field goal attempts the next closest team is phoenix at 17 and if you're getting in you know and then boston who we've talked about for years and not being bad they're at 17 as well so they're a pretty big step below the worst teams in the league outside of them. And when you look at this roster, it's not that surprising because point guard is a big weakness while Fournier can create a little bit. And like, you know, Terrence Ross can hit shots. Those guys don't draw too many fouls. And so something I wanted to look at is one of the ways that teams draw fouls is on drives. And so Orlando is middle of the road in terms of drive frequency, 41 times a game. But on those 41 drives, they only draw 3.5 free throw attempts per game, which is incredibly low. Like, so the Knicks drive about with the same frequency, they get two more free throws. So that's not quite double, but, you know, relatively close to that. And it's not like the Knicks are loaded at, at point guard either. I mean, they're, they're better than the Magic, in my opinion, right now, but not too much. And part of the part of the factor is that the Magic pass on a lot of their drives, and it's harder to get fouled that way for a couple different reasons. And part of the reason why they pass so much is because Orlando's drivers are not good finishers. So I've been thinking about, you know, well, how much is one really good offense player theoretically i'm not even sure they're going to get that guy but how much is that going to change their offense and i don't think it's going to you know fix everything but i do think it will really help because there just aren't that many situations that 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 they have a player who inspires panic inspires help and if they could get somebody like that a lot of these complementary offensive players would look better yeah and vooch could be a great pick and roll partner for as the way he's been shooting the ball this year as someone that the big has to stick to in pick and roll and get some going downhill and august and I think Vooch has helped him look a lot better. And Augustin is... As bad as we thought that contract was uh, for four years, twenty million, I think they've actually gotten pretty close to their money's worth out of that contract. Uh, Biombo less so, but you know, since Augustine has actually been starting for them, and yeah, you didn't want to necessarily go that many years, but you know we're the third year into this contract, and he's been playing reasonably well for them. They certainly can't do anything when he's off the floor. Uh, that's for sure. You know, he Grant the downgrade between him and Vooch to Grant and Bamba is just a, a massive one couple other notes just to check in briefly on these guys melvin frazier jr uh, out of tulane who was someone who we at least like the theory of in the draft he's only played 16 minutes all season and wes awundu who i never particularly cared for you know he's not having some great season either but he's been well ahead of, of frazier frazier you know awundu's played 336 minutes and frazier has only played 16 and we feared that might be the case with frazier having a, a pretty rough summer league as jump shot 
has not looked ready yet and he was an older rookie too i think he was a junior i think he was 21 coming out so the hope was maybe he could make a little bit of an impact they definitely is have really needed wing play and uh the fact that he's been buried this much so far hasn't been great uh anything else on these guys no i i i'm wondering if there will be any more experimentation from clifford but considering they've been they're competitive they're in the east playoff mix i don't think that's going to happen in the immediate but it would be a good thing just for player evaluation purposes i mean vooch notwithstanding to figure out some of these other combinations you know give bomba some more time with dj augustine play isaac at center because they're going to have some big decisions to make they don't have a ton of cap space they're they're going to have you know a draft pick it's probably not going to be super good but they're going to have to make a decision on it and knowing what they have and knowing these are the guys we have to keep these are the guys we're thinking about trading i think you want a more robust understanding of who these players are before that point even if that point is july not the trade deadline Let's move now to New York. Nine and twenty-two, one and six over their last seven. Their negative seven point four net rating is twenty-sixth in the NBA. I always seem to catch them on their friskier nights. Perhaps because they're playing a lot of games in Eastern time zone. I don't think they've had a, a Western swing yet. And so if I turn to their game, usually it'll be because it's close. And if it's one of the games where they're getting blown out, it just kind of doesn't register in my consciousness as much. But they're 26th in the NBA net rating, kind of right about where we thought they would be. 23rd in offense and a, a putrid now 29th in defense. Unsurprising given their big man rotation, their starting Cantor and playing him a ton of minutes. They project for 24 wins, which would be 12th in the conference and uh, have negligible odds of making the playoffs. Uh, Damian Dotson has returned from a, a sh- or I'm sorry, Damian Dunst has missed the last two with a shoulder issue. Uh, but Trey Burke is back, although he struggled today uh, against the Pacers. But uh, they were running out of their 45 days with Alonzo Trier, and they gave him a pretty lucrative contract, Danny. They did. I, I broke this down for The Athletic, theathletic.com slash Capspace on Friday because I found the decision so unusual and interesting. So basically what they did is they gave Trier the full biannual exception. It does prorate, but it hasn't started prorating yet. That happens in January. And then on top of that, so that raised the salary. Theoretically, they could have unilaterally converted him to rest of the season minimum because it looks like he had a one-year two-way contract that he would have been restricted with a, basically as low of a cap hold as you can have as a restricted free agent unless he made the starter criteria, which he wouldn't have. And so instead of making the minimum, he's making $3.38 million this year. But then part of why they did that is because then they got a $3.6 million dollar deal for 1920 but that is structured as a team option why that being a team option is so interesting is because the knicks could theoretically get out of it in full if they wanted to they could just you know decline that but then they could also theoretically decline the team option to make trier a restricted free agent but the problem with that and this is something we've talked about with milos tedosic most recently is that declining a team option on a or or a player option whichever case on a player who makes a lot more than the minimum that means it's a pretty substantial qualifying offer. So in his case, qualifying offer would have been about $4.2 million or would be if they if they decline it. And that's a pretty desirable thing because if they make that qualifying offer, Trier could just sign it. Yeah, and another option they would have too would be decline the team option and then offer him the room exception, which would not hurt their cap space at all. 
this summer. I mean, do you th- would he really have had that big of an offer out there though? Like, w- I know he's played pretty well, but he's on a on a bad team. He'll be restricted. The other thing too is it, he would have had a cap hold that was likely two hundred thousand dollars above the minimum. I don't think he would have hit the starter criteria. Maybe he would have, but I, I don't think so. Well, especially he's hurt now with the yeah, hamstring issue. Yeah, that so. that actually would have might have prevented it. Well, yeah. So that that's actually what I wrote a lot of the piece about was this two million dollar difference between the team option and what would have been the qualifying offer. And we have no idea at this point. There's so much uncertainty. Who's going to say yes to the next? How much money they're actually going to clear? And whether that two million would matter. But what I talked about was that's why it's a little bit weird to do this. Is because you you made a guy quote unquote whole and you are not whole you 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 gave him money you rewarded him and all that kind of stuff but you did so with a very real risk in a year where it doesn't matter this isn't the same as giving ron baker which was a disaster giving him that second year player option for way too much money when the first year was a mistake because the knicks were never going to spend money last summer so giving you know there wasn't as much of an opportunity cost this actually has while it is a more justified contract based on player quality it has a higher opportunity cost because that two million might end up mattering to the knicks we don't know yet yeah and if you do bring in say kevin durant in which case every last dollar is going to matter now signing trier to the room exception i think the opportunity cost there is probably too big right like he's a young player he's shown some scoring ability to be sure i like him but is he really going to help you win a lot of games next year with kevin durant when you consider that some vets really might want to go there and play with him and be part of a winning team you know that that's a good question and that's why i mean i think certainly the higher upside play for the knicks would have been just unilaterally converting him and having him be a a restricted free agent at the end of this year and that way maybe you could have your cake and eat it too in terms of and even if someone else gave him a pretty big contract well you've probably already signed whoever whatever big free agent you're going to sign in theory and yeah you you could by the time you would have to match would be july 8th at the earliest and he would only count as that small cap hold until then so you actually you know could, could have your cake and eat it too yeah you might have to pay him a little bit more the next year i mean i guess the the thought is well this at least gives you cost certainty for next year in theory but because it's a team option they're not going to know necessarily if anyone's going to go there so they have to decide on that team option by june 29th they won't know what exactly is going to happen in free agency by that point i mean maybe they will but it seems unlikely to know for sure so and then obviously if you decline it it goes up to that 4.2 million you just cost yourself more cap space so i'm uh i mean i'm not sure like like what are they getting danny by giving him like so much of a bump this year like i don't get it yeah there's a parallel here to denver you know i've talked about this with automatis before that they they've made all these guys you know that they have done well for them and they've given them a big contract and that makes and, and so this, there's this idea that maybe guys will want to play there well that doesn't really happen like it's it probably makes the, the, people are, feel are nice, the guys going to want to play there for less money because they can't afford to pay them because they took care of these other guys is, is that the thinking <laughs> Right. And like, yeah, okay, you, the Knicks giving Trier money that maybe another two way player will sign there. But in order for a guy to be a two way player, they have to have fallen far enough in the draft and everything like that. You know, you're, sque- you're trying to squeeze value out of something that isn't as valuable as the cap space that you gave up to sign this guy to more money, you know, to, to a higher wage. Like, yeah, I, I, I'm very critical of that. You know, it's very possible that this ends up not costing them, but it's so strange because it could. And 
that could is is a challenge here. One thing I want to mention though with Trier, maybe they were a little bit scared of the idea of him getting such a high offer sheet because while he would have been arenas limited, they would not have been able to they would have only been able to use non-bird to retain him. And so maybe they were worried about somebody giving him such a big offer sheet that they would have had to theoretically use cap space and losing him for nothing. But in that circumstance, because he's only a one year player with a two year guy, you don't have to worry about that because you have the the early bird covers that margin. That, that is but a good it point. With I, that that it was in the but, recesses of my mind, but I I had uh, I, yeah. I should have mentioned. So it. so that's a possibility, but that's that you know like kind of in some ways that's a good problem to have. Like if he is so if he is so talented that another team is making that kind of an offer, then you handle that. You and, and Trier, as much as I've liked him, he hasn't been like an eight million dollar player so far. So and so I, I wouldn't be you know falling all over myself about that possibility. Something else I wanted to talk about though. Because I was watching, I watched almost the whole thing of their crazy comebacks that then followed by an OT win in Charlotte. They were down 93-78 after three quarters, roared back with a 35-20 fourth quarter. And part of why it was so fun to watch was because it was an unusual set of players for the Knicks that were out there. I think part of it is because Fisdale did this idea that a lot of teams do of like reward the guys who help bring you back. And so during that run, including the overtime, Canner and Frank Nokina didn't play at all. Mitchell Robinson got hurt in the third quarter. He ended up missing their loss to Indiana on Sunday as well. So their, their big men for the entire 17 minutes were Noah Vonley and Luke Cornett. Cornett was big. You know, he, he had 11 points and five assists just in that time period. Three offensive rebounds, three of five from three. So it forced Charlotte to have, have guys spaced out to him the whole time. And then the other guy who was a massive, massive difference maker was Emmanuel Moutier. Just in the fourth quarter and overtime, he had 20 points points. 9 of 11 from the field, 2 assists, 2 turnovers. He was 5 of 6 on shots 10 feet and further out. The only shot he missed was a 3 at the end of regulation, which actually could have won them the game. There was 4.4 seconds left. He got the ball, kind of dribbled around, and then shot it over Marvin Williams. It almost went in. I thought they could have gotten maybe a slightly better shot, but anyway, if that's the only shot he misses outside of 10 feet, it's a pretty dang good stretch for him. And strangely enough, their leading assister during that stretch was Noah Vonley, who had 6. A lot of it was, you know, feeding the ball to guards who were scoring and everything like that but they just played really well they showed life and it was a different set of players i absolutely loved watching them thrive yeah that zone was crazy although they went to it again against indiana and indiana was ready for it they actually torched them uh, as we can talk about more in the indiana section um a couple other notes from their game today against indiana mario hazonia who hasn't been playing much with Knox in the starting lineup now actually looked pretty good in post defense like he stoned saponis and turner a couple of times then the last thing i want to talk about is with Lance Thomas coming back you know he's probably the most established combo forward type of player on this team do you think they're going to play him at all is he going to fit back into this rotation or do you think just as a vet clearly is going to get waived with only that that small guarantee for next year if they just kind of put him on ice I think he'll be more on ice but then maybe if there's a game where they're not really defending well or there's a specific challenge Fizdale could turn to him to say hey guard player x yeah, that, that seems to make sense to me. And, and he's never really been able to replicate the three-point shooting he showed that got him that big contract. 
to begin with. Liam's going to talk about the Bucks uh, at the end here. Let's talk about the Miami Heat. Another big win for the Heat. This has been quite the successful road trip for them. They've had some big wins. They, they beat the Clippers, took care of New Orleans. Uh, again, a shorthanded New Orleans team tonight. Uh, they sit at 13 and 16. It was looking pretty ugly. I think they were 7 and 13 at one point. So they are 4 and 3 since the last 15 and 60. Negative 1.2 rating, or net rating, I should say, is 21st. 25th in offense, not good. Ninth in defense, all right, that's a little better. They project for 35 wins, which would be a tie for 10th, and a 30% chance at the playoffs. Um, it's been interesting. I mean, Hassan Whiteside has been out didn't close the game today against anthony davis not a good matchup for him and so they have been playing better goran dragic still in and out of the lineup you know they've been relying on Dwayne wade to create a lot of offense and so the biggest thing that's holding this team back offensively is you know they, they've been playing this drive and kick style for a while now going back to a couple of years ago when they had that nice run that 30 and 11 run has to be mentioned by the way every time we talk about the heat back in uh 2016-17 but they are 29th in points per possession by the pick and roll ball handler 20 percent of the time in the half court or i shouldn't say in the half court but just uh in their initial possessions they have a possession finished with a shot or turnover by the pick and roll ball handler seven point or i'm sorry 0.74 points per possession and shooting 37.1 percent out of the, the pick and roll and especially you know josh richardson has been a revelation this year but you know a lot of that's the three-point shooting taking jumpers off the dribble from three when he gets into the lane he only finishes at a 50 percent clip at the rim Dwayne Wade you know not a primary quality pick and roll ball handler at this point in his career and, and Dragic has been slowed with the knee injury although they have actually scored at a reasonable rate with Dragic on the floor 108 offensive rating with he's off the floor they go down to 102 so that's really where they're struggling they when they can get spot-up chances, they hit them reasonably well. They rank 12th in the NBA on spot-ups. They don't really get out in transition much at all, and they score very poorly in transition. They're 22nd in the league there, and they're just not really able, you know, on putbacks, they're not able to score very well you know, as a on a point-per-possession basis. On cuts, they're 29th in the NBA, so they just don't have guys who finish well at the rim on this team. And even someone like Bam Adebayo is not as good of a rim finisher as you might think he is, especially on non-dunks. The one thing they've managed to avoid is having to go to ISO. They just don't have the guys who can do that. But uh, they're also 26th in the NBA there. So there's really just, other than just making wide open shots there's not much that this team can do well uh, offensively and given their personnel that shouldn't be a big surprise i want to talk a little bit about justice winslow he is having a a, a somewhat different offensive season that he's you know last year we talked about he was making 38 percent of his threes that was great but it was a really low attempt rate his attempt rate has gone up and his uh, success has stayed exactly the same he's shooting 38 percent again this year but on 5.7 threes per 100 possessions as opposed to 3.9 so that's a another little step up it's about 34 percent of his shots now so you go well that's great you know he's doing that and he's getting to the free throw line a little bit more making some more free throws compared to last year but his true shooting percentage has actually gone down because he's only making 40 percent of his twos on the season yeah and Winslow it's been interesting right the thought was coming in on a good team his rookie year remember that was the team that won 48 games he actually had to play center in the game seven because they were just so injured against the Raptors that ended up getting blown out but it was playing real playoff minutes for that team 
and the thought was all right he's going to be a three and d guy then he had the next year that was kind of ruined by the shoulder injury and the shooting hadn't really come around in terms of volume but the one thing that did look better was actually his dribbling and we're like well all right he actually can get out in transition his handle looks pretty good the thought was that he's this really athletic wing guy but he's just has never quite had that type of bounce and that type of physicality and touch around the rim and so 19 percent usage is just too high for him you know again there's a lot of guys that's not saying that teams using him wrong or that he should taking bad shots it's just ideally his role he wouldn't have to take that many shots he could focus more on not having to create his own offense not having to attack off the drill because i mean he's shooting about 45 percent on floaters and at the rim and it just he's not explosive enough to just go through people at the basket and while he's got enough of a handle to actually get there you know he's not drawing the defense with his finishing ability he's not drawing help he's trying to finish it and you know it hasn't really looked great so i think he still needs to be in a smaller role he's basically like has developed his dribbling just enough to get himself into more inefficient shots essentially uh well i will add to that that he has been better as a creator for other people you know his assist rate has really risen over the last couple years now i don't think he's good enough to rely on that on a good offense but it has helped yeah that's fair i mean i I think it's more just again they're not saying that he's been a selfish player or anything uh, along those lines it's more just that he's not like oh man we got to stop this guy getting downhill and that's going to open open guys up um james johnson is slowly starting to come back you recall he had that hernia surgery then even said that a lot of it was getting back in shape getting back to the weight that the heat needed him to be i guess that's part of why that surgery recovery took so long he was awful in his first 10 or so games back and he's still feeling the effects of that terrible struggle 39 percent from the field 28 percent from three this season but he started to look a little bit better over his last five part of that is with white side out he's had a a little bit more defined role the three is still off during that period but averaging nine points a game 20 minutes a game and and shooting well from two over his last five games that doesn't include tonight's game so the question is what happens when Hassan Whiteside gets back into a bigger role or if that even will occur tonight he did start had 17 and 12 six offensive rebounds and was plus five so maybe he's not going to just kill them I mean he's a very convenient punching bag and we've talked about him at length some of the things that he needs to clean up but probably never will at this point in his late 20s uh but in 20 25 minutes a game you know he definitely shouldn't be playing more than that especially because then you know he can't turn into blonde coat with the foul trouble so it'll be interesting to see i mean the fact that they started against anthony davis doesn't augur that they're just gonna like take him out of the rotation entirely it doesn't and i mean it but it is notable that he was plus five 17 and 12 in 23 minutes and then still didn't close the game yeah i mean they still spo doesn't trust him so even when he's playing well and remember this game was better for him than most pelicans games would be because Miritich didn't play so it was more davis and randall together and that's better yeah, for Whiteside in particular and so and i mean they also shake the yellow played a little bit it was a weird game and the heat have a have a propensity for that and so but and what's what's weird about miami is that they have a lot of like capable players but they don't have a lot of those kind of combustible standout type guys you know it's it's more like a lot of complementary pieces that would be better on other teams and that they don't have that guy that makes all of them sing 
And that might just, that, I think that's just kind of where they are. You know, Johnson's that type of guy to me, Magruder, Justice Winslow. Yeah. Josh can maybe get outside of that, but you know, they can still fight. And in this terrible bottom of the Eastern Conference, I think they have a pretty good shot at making the playoffs. Yeah. It would help them if Wayne Ellington could get going a, a little bit. Ellington has really struggled so far this year. He's been out of the rotation and just hasn't been making shots at his usual rate, uh, despite taking 83% of his shots from downtown all right we got a ton here on the indiana pacers 20 and 10 7 and 0 uh, despite victor oladipo missing a chunk of those games in their last seven 5.6 net rating seventh in the nba they're the 19th ranked offense but man this team defends 103.1 defensive rating they project for fifth in the conference with 49 wins and they will make the playoffs almost certainly according to 538 what did you see in their game against philly which was conducted without the presence of jimmy butler I thought Thaddeus Young was great. I thought that he did a, a really good job to, on defense. That's that's really where you want to start. It was helped by Jimmy Butler not being there. Philly's just so much less dynamic. And to, and also Thaddeus Young had a lot to do, but it was a, a much more manageable job. I did well on Simmons and really whoever else they put him on. But then offensively, he also contributed. 26 points, 9-19 from the field, 8-9 from the free throw line, which was important. 10 rebounds, 5 assists, no turnovers. And he played 39 minutes of pretty hot, intense minutes because of all the defense he had to play. But I think the more interesting element, but I wanted to mention Thaddeus Young because I thought he was great. And I think that's important. But we've been looking a lot at Philly versus Indiana because that has kind of seemed like the presumed four or five series. And with the way with the way Indiana is playing, it could be in either order. Could We could see either team being the four or the five. And in their game over the weekend, what I think was most notable is, and this is really where the series is going to turn, who guards Oladipo? Presumably that'll be Jimmy Butler, but then also the center position. And so in this one, Joel Embiid got Miles Turner into foul trouble. I didn't love all of the calls, but Joel Embiid is, A, he's a hard guy to officiate, he's a hard guy to defend, and it's going to be, you know, part of the experience sometimes. So so Turner didn't have a great game. He only played 17 minutes. But yet again, and I believe this was true in the game we did for, for the NBA cast, Sabonis did a really nice job against Joel Embiid. Well, he didn't just uh, have the dunk of the season on him this year, <laughs> I'm guessing. So, but, yeah. yeah, this this time around. Yeah, but like, I, I think it's just, I mean, Embiid still was, you know, he still had a, a, a wonderful game because he's Joel Embiid and he's a monster and everything else. But Sabonis, you know, was able to get to his spots. He's a good facilitator as well. And he can, you know, defend without getting in too much trouble. And so, you know, Joel Embiid still had 40 and 21 and was completely ridiculous. But I thought that Sabonis did a pretty good job. And also Sabonis benefited from playing the minutes against the awful backup centers, which we talked about in the Philly section. Yeah, and Young, you mentioned the 26 points. I mean, he, because they just have these guys who hopefully won't be playing nearly as big of a role in the playoffs, like Shamit, Korkmaz, you know, usually your three can deal with Thaddeus Young in the post okay, but those guys are just going to get completely overwhelmed, even if they know that Young always goes to his left hand down there. And Miles Turner, we'll see if he is shooting a few more threes lately, it seems like, you know, been a little more aggressive out there of late that's a, yet another thing that could cause Joel Embiid some problems perhaps I watched their game today against the Knicks Victor Oladipo had a really nice game 26 points but much of that was built on five of eight three-point shooting I did not see him have that same crazy explosion to the basket that we saw before I mean there's a couple times when he was just one-on-one -on -one against Tim Hardaway and like couldn't beat him uh he wasn't getting downhill in the pick and roll quite as well. They did have a nice pick and pop three to Turner to ice it. And I think that's something that they can go to a lot more at the end of games, especially if Turner can just kind of wait out at the top. It 
Oladipo force help from the big and then they just throw it right out to the top to Turner once Oladipo is penetrated that's something I'd like to see from them uh Oladipo was really awesome defensively though I thought especially in the second half he just completely made Tim Hardaway's life miserable uh I also had to rewind my TV because I saw Doug McDermott block a shot in transition I've actually seen Doug McDermott block two shots live so far this year um what I was most impressed by other than the defensive intensity when they turned it up in the fourth quarter was just how prepared they were for the Knicks zone they just got great shots against that pretty much the entire and you know they'd seen that on film obviously when the Knicks came back against Charlotte as we talked about earlier but they got really good shots against the zone they were running specific plays to take care of it and I thought what they really were causing problems with was putting the corner guy in that 2-3 zone into difficulty and the way that they were able to do that was by forcing the guard at the top of the zone the the guy who's on the wing to by either screening him or making him react to vacate that spot and so then that was forcing whoever was in the corner to come up from the corner to take the guy to prevent a wide open wing three sometimes they would run a pick and roll there uh, on the side but they had good spacing on it they actually had the near side corner filled which you normally wouldn't necessarily want to do uh when you're running a, a side pick and roll but because it was against a zone if you do that then that guy on the baseline has to come up to prevent the open wing three and Oladipo was hitting that wing three and so then they're able to just throw it right to the corner and McDermott for a three Oladipo just got a shot when the guy in the corner didn't want to leave they ran a, a nice out of bounds play where they had two guys in a row cut across the face of the center in the zone and then he didn't know who to take so they're able to get the ball to the free throw line and then throw it to the dunker for a dunk that was pretty easy uh another time they got it to the free throw line and then the guard had to collapse they threw it right out to the wing the guy on the baseline had to run up and then they threw it right to the corner for an open three so they got just great shots pretty much every single time against the Knicks zone I thought they were very prepared I was impressed yeah they they do a good job I was thinking back to when we were talking about them kind of against a couple of different matchups of attacking what another team gives them even going back to that game against Carmelo last year and okay when they just ran pick and roll at him every single game and Nate McMillan deserves credit for that but I want to talk a little bit also about their defense and so they're a couple different kind of what I call signature elements of their defense so far. So they've been the the best in the league, and this was before their win against the Knicks. Uh, They've been the best at limiting ball handler scoring out of pick and rolls. Just .73 points per possession, which is ridiculous, like 0.73. And that's a little less than a fifth of all their possessions. And they're also number two in roll man points per possession. So they're just killing pick and roll defense. And then they're also number two in isolation defense, which is fantastic. And they're, you know, average or better around there in everything else. So they're, they're, pretty good at everything and it was a similar story last year they were good on both elements of the pick and roll and they were pretty good nice it's just they've gotten stronger they weren't elite they were just very good in those things and another really important takeaway you know last year because they had all these struggles defensively in pre-McMillan and then they they really improved in a couple areas and one of them was foul rate I mean Miles Turner early in his career was high foul rate they had a lot of these other guys and last year their foul rate dropped a lot and we're kind of sitting there going well what is it going to be and yet again they're they're down there so I'm I'm pretty close to believing I actually do believe that they're low foul rate that that's just who they are now and Turner's gotten a lot better a couple other guys too and that makes them a much more potent defense because they're giving away fewer just easy points and you just look at their personnel Oladipo he was just unbelievable defensively he also had six steals in this game it should have been he had five and then on an inbounds he actually knocked the ball off of Hardaway and I think they just counted it as a turnover I don't think they gave him a steal which they should have so he had six steals today 
Young, I mean, he's going to be right up there as an all-defense candidate. He was also in the playoffs last year. Corey Joseph, off the bench, one of the best defensive point guards. Bogdanovich, they've gotten shockingly good play out of him. I mean, he's never going to be a huge plus, but you know, he was one of the worst defenders at his position, and he's been totally solid since arriving at the Pacers. And then uh, Miles Turner, who will have to do a full breakdown on his defense someday. We keep promising to do that, but we had lots of Pacers stuff this time. He has looked really, really good so far. I mean, those crazy numbers on him, 9% block rate this year. Um, the only thing he's really struggling at is still not being a great defensive rebounder or a box out guy but he's defending a ton of shots at the rim he's uh lowering the defensive field goal percentage quite a bit and you know that nine percent block rate is not gonna hold up uh because last year the highest was 6.4 percent for anyone with over a thousand minutes you know he could drop down to about seven percent or so uh if only i think that happens if only because guys are just gonna stop trying him at some point but yeah i mean he's had more verticality plays this year that i can recall he had a couple of nice plays there against the knicks so he's definitely taken a step forward when we wondered and especially with guys like joseph and oladipo on the perimeter to get out over screens he doesn't have to get too far out in the perimeter anymore and then he's able to use verticality a little bit more around the room so he's taken a big step forward this season um anything else you wanted to say uh on their defense side, a couple more thoughts on their offense, but we should uh, keep it consistent. Yeah, two more two more points. So they've improved a lot on defensive rebounding this year. I'm a little bit more skeptical on that. We talked about how Miles Turner still isn't great there. He's contesting so many shots, and I think they're maybe playing a little bit over their head there. And then the other thing is their effective field goal percentage defense, which is the biggest of the four factors, they've gone from 16th to 7th, and it looks like there is some luck there. I mean, tr- the opponents are shooting 5% worse from the rim, and while Turner is doing better, I think Sabonis has been better defensively this year. That's a big drop. And teams are shooting 8% worse on floaters. You don't expect those type of things to continue. They're giving up a lot of threes and they're not going in. They're, you know, middle of the road in terms of giving them up. So I think that their defense is a little bit over their skis, but not ridiculously so. And that's a huge step for them because, yeah, they're, they're second right now. But if they're a top 10 defense with the, the talent that they have, it's a really intriguing team. Yeah, I mean, I think they really got to be top five, though, with it, with this offense. But it, I think for all of what I love that McMillan has done in coaching there, and I, and I was went out of my way to say how good I thought they were prepared against that Knicks zone today, I still think they could be having a, a more modern approach, especially with Turner. Turner has been a little more effective in the post this year, but he still gets stood up too often, still sells for the lower percentage, jump hook, the quick move, doesn't get fouled. And one thing that's really interesting, they are number one in the league by a mile with 11.1 possessions per game used by the pick and roll roll man, which is usually extremely efficient, right? Like, oh, he's rolling to the rim. He's getting dunks, right? Like that's what teams try to take away. If we can get this many possessions for that, like that's got to be great, right? Well, unfortunately, they're 29th in the NBA, 0.95 points per possession, which is not, that's not the end of the world. You know, it's still going to be a half court possession. 0.95 points per possession is pretty decent for a half court possession when you're not including offensive rebounds as well. But the problem is they're not getting any threes out of that. I noted that one Turner pick and pop three today because it was so rare. We just don't see that from them. So it give you a little perspective. The second highest number of possessions per game to the roll man is the raptors and that's with 9.1 per game so they're averaging two more possessions than any other team 20 percent more possessions basically than any other team uh but the raptors you know these other teams that get a lot of these possessions 
they're rolling more to the rim or they've got Serge Ibaka who's having an unbelievable mid-range season Jonas Valanciunas is a bull around the rim he's a very underrated pick and roll player whereas you know Turner Sabonis is solid there uh, but you know usually the other problem that they have too is that when they're running pick and roll that's usually with the center well their four is Thaddeus Young and while Young has been a little more aggressive shooting the three lately a lot of times he's going to be down in the dunker spot but he's not going to go and catch an alley-oop on the pick and roll so even when they are rolling to the basket there's not as much space as there might be versus a team with a little bit more traditional spacing so that's interesting to watch but I think they could really help fix that a lot if they just had Miles Turner pick and pop for a three instead of a two uh but you know that has not been in their DNA so far this year and uh, the last thing I'll say too Corey Joseph is having a wonderful season as a spot-up shooter 75 percent e-field goal percentage in spot-up situations he's 29 out of 52 and that includes a quite a few threes but he still doesn't shoot that many threes he's actually kind of similar to his old mentor with the Spurs Tony Parker where it takes him a while to load up he's much more comfortable from the corners but when he does take him he, he hits a pretty high percent yeah and there's been some speculation about Indiana changing up their point guard rotation because of Aaron Holiday coming in maybe they could even move one of those guys to clear open minutes yeah, for Holiday Carlson hasn't done I mean, much this year he hasn't done much this year and it would be fascinating to see how McMillan would run the two let's say theoretically they traded Carlson of of Joseph and Holiday because I mean adding Joseph for their starting lineup would create some really potent defensive lineups and maybe maybe that would work really really well so that might be the way to do it but we'll have to see and of course always in those circumstances like fake trades and everything like that it depends on what you're being offered and what what they're getting out of it because if if, if they could get somebody who filled a different position and you know was really occupied a, a greater need that would be a possibility but if they don't want to take on future money or something else like that it might just be a hard nut to crack in terms of finding finding the right partner one more thing uh our director of insight and foresight liam who you're about to hear uh, on this buck section uh, compiled these stats uh without oladipo the final number is seven and four i mean that's we thought it would be a disaster when he was out it was a disaster last year i think they're zero and seven when he didn't play last year they had that terrible stretch when he missed four straight games and they got blown out in all those games uh they had the fourth bet net rating over that stretch 16th on offense second uh, on defense continued to force a, a large number of turnovers as well and, and avoid fouling and during that time period miles turner was key but even when turner was off the floor only a 103 defensive rating uh they got a little bit better ball movement while oladipo was out they were 23rd in assist percentage before his injury and in the 11 games he missed they were second and boyan bogdanovich another guy we probably need to do a breakdown on it at some point 19 points a game 65 percent true shooting leading the team in scoring with oladipo out he's having a quite a good offensive season and some idiot who said that they should have declined to exercise the guarantee on his and Collison's contracts. I think that's actually looking to be correct in terms of Collison. Uh, but Bogdanovich has certainly given them a ton of production there for that $10 million uh, over one year. They, and it was basically, I think he had 2.5 of that guaranteed. Maybe it was 1.5. But anyway, it was basically like a $9 million decision to keep him. And uh, that has worked out exceedingly well so far. Let's go to Liam now. His team this week, the Milwaukee Bucks. So the Bucks, their fundamentals so far, they're four and two since the last 15 and 60, 19 and nine overall. First in net rating, second in offensive rating, and seventh in defensive rating. And they're projected for 55 wins, which would put them tied for second in the East, according to the five PDA projections. So just a, a little bit of news. Uh, Middleton and Ogden both missed Friday's win over Cleveland, but the injuries weren't that serious. Middleton had a finger and Brogdon had a hamstring injury, so not that serious overall. But I wanted to talk about the defense and how they've been successful 
successful so far this year and if it was sustainable. So they're dominating the paint inside. It's it's ridiculous what they're doing. They're preventing they're, they're preventing shots at the rim better than any team in the league. They're forcing the lowest opponent field percentage at the rim. They're best in defensive rebounding percentage, and they have the lowest opponent free throw rate. So basically, they're closing off the paint at all costs. They're in the big and pick and roll, and they're rotating over a third guy from the weak side a lot of the times. And even on just normal drives, they're helping one pass away to clog gaps, and they're going under a lot of ball screens. So they're doing basically anything they can to cut off penetration. And they've done a pretty good job and getting out the shooters. They're contesting the highest percent of opponent's shots by far so for this season. So, but the thing I was concerned about is I, I dug in a number and they're seventh in defense and you think that's pretty good, but uh, not exactly. I mean, I looked it up and they have the best transition defense in the league, which is good, but they're just 18th um, in half court defense. And that doesn't seem that, you know, sustainable for me when you get to the playoffs. I don't know exactly the history of how half court defense uh, correlates to playoff success on the defensive end. I do know I looked it up for last year and Portland actually had a similar problem where the defense was really good overall, but their half-court defense was less good. And then you saw how that played out in the playoffs. So that's a small sample size with just that matchup. I was curious what you guys thought of, you know, the difference between the overall defense and their half-court defense. And if that, you know, is kind of a problem that you guys see going forward for them. Yeah, I think, you know, when you talk about their transition defense is that transition defense, because I, I think transition defense is certainly important in the playoffs and, and more so as the game is sped up these last few years but is that transition defense built on a low points per possession in transition or are they just keeping opponents out of transition entirely i think the latter is more sustainable it's long been a theory of mine that you know just preventing points per possession in transition is something that teams can't really do that well and that you know if a team is shooting a shot in transition it's because it's open much like kind of the theory is on opponent three-point attempts so if they're keeping teams out of transition and that's why the transition defense is so good uh, then you know i find that to be perhaps more sustainable than if they're just you know perhaps getting lucky on a small sample size with teams missing shots in transition well i'll add a- this in milwaukee is lowest in opponent transition points per play in in transitions frequencies also you know frequencies okay too but that is is a big part of it and the other reason liam i think it's good that you brought up half court defense because that is something you know personnel and everything else that can be exploited in the playoffs if there is something structural and i mean nate and i were going a little bit crazy doing the nba cast for that celtics bucks game because teams with superior personnel incidentally the celtics can be this way exploited this way defensively too you just run up against teams with superior personnel and you can obviously adjust in game plan and so some of the things that the bucks are choosing to take away create these seams and i think that the best teams especially with adjustments over a seven game a seven game series can create more of those advantage situations and i don't know that the bucks have another wrinkle to counter that because it's their whole philosophy and so if they're if they're willing to go away from it then they would be going away from it more well, now and one more thing here real quickly i know you have a lot more to get to liam but another great transition team is the boston celtics and what do the celtics and Bucks have in common centers who spend a lot of time above the break, uh, shooting above the break threes, screening, pick and popping. I've long maintained that 
the biggest key to transition defense is getting your bigs back right if you have a big back to protect the rim now you're not so worried about guys getting all the way to the rim in transition for layups and the rest of your team can fan out to, to three-point shooters so i think that that's a, a big part of it since the bucks have been playing these shooting centers and they don't really attack the offensive glass that much with their bigs that may be part of why they're able to get back but i, I know you had a lot more here liam so what else did you want to focus on here no, that, that ties into a lot of what I was saying. I was actually going to talk about Brooke Lopez next and the effect he's having on the team. Uh, crazily enough, he's 15th in the league in three-point attempts per game. And I looked up the next closest center. Uh, Lopez is shooting seven threes a game right now. And the next closest is Carl Towns is shooting like 4.73. So it's like a massive gap between him and the next like best shooting big as far as facing the floor. And then from that, I looked at the on-off court numbers with Brooke Lopez. And he's actually, you know, by plus minus, he's been the best player on the Bucks. Obviously, Giannis is their best player, but he's had the biggest effect on them while he's on the court. Their, the net rating with Lopez is 14.5, and without him, it's a, it's actually a negative dis- differential. And their offense and their defense both take massive jumps. And then specifically, you can see the the Bucks field goal percentage at the rim is 72% with Lopez in the game, which makes sense. You know, with Lopez out on the perimeter, the, the paint's completely wide open, and a lot of guys are having a lot of success driving into those wide open driving lanes. And three-point percentage is also up. And then defensively, they're rebounding much better with Lopez on the court. He never fouls, and they're preventing a lot more shots at the rim. And, and so with that in mind, I mean, I know Rudy Gobert's kind of gotten knocked as a, as a big that hangs back and, you know, against, you know, the top flight playoff competition, you know, he's not, you know, he has his limitations as somebody that can't get out on those guys that can pull up from three. So do you guys have like similar concerns with Lopez and that he might not be as effective in the playoffs? And then if so, I mean, that seems like a big problem because he's been such a huge part of their early success. Well, I, I was talking about this uh, last week on a couple of shows, including this one, that in the East now, there isn't really that one just nuclear-powered offense. I mean, the Bucks are probably the closest to that uh, themselves uh, with Lopez on the floor. Uh, and you know, maybe the Celtics could get there eventually. Maybe the Sixers, if they make some additions, could get there eventually. The Raptors, to me, just don't quite have the shooting ability on the wing. I mean, they, they score very well, but, you know, schematically, the Raptors aren't forcing you that far out of what you would normally want to do with Lopez. And obviously, we've also talked about, I mean, you mentioned Eric Bledsoe does a great job of just you know, he can be a little spacey as a help defender sometimes and lose shooters. But as a pick and roll defender, he might be the best in the league at just getting over a ball screen if they just tell him, hey, your job is just to do that. You stick to this guy, you get over a ball screen. You know, he's been awesome. He's really shut down a, a lot of opposing point guards. Uh, and then, of course, the, there's the help that we've uh, focused on so much with, with this team. So it, I think it could be an issue in theory. But I don't see any of their big opponents as like, oh, man, we're just going to play Brook Lopez off the floor with just in going small, incredible shooting. He's just not going to be able to cover the ground. Uh, you know, they might cause some problems with that. But Brook is so good uh, offensively at this point. I mean, amazing signing for the Bucks, uh, by the way, with uh, the, the biannual. Uh, a couple more notes uh, on Lopez. Brook Lopez has the second most spot up possessions uh, in the NBA uh, per synergy. I mean, that's just a crazy number for a center. Uh, Liam, would you care to guess who is first? And uh, I will give you a hint that is a team you generally follow pretty closely that this guy plays for. Uh, um, all right. If it's on the Jazz, I'd probably guess Jay Crowder. That is him. Is he? He's a guy. Nice yeah, he is. Right, he uh, has, a, I think, 150, and Lopez was like somewhere in the in the 140s when I looked at it uh, last night. And then the Bucks don't do 
a lot of finding the role man in pick and roll but Giannis Lopez and the departed John Henson are all 1.4 points per possession or above all of that is top 15 in the NBA when the Bucks hit the roll man they're at 1.34 points per possession which obviously is amazing my guess is that that all oh, Lopez pick and pop for three he's been on fire that's actually not it he hasn't shot very well on the, the few pick and pops that he's taken again he's really just spotting up and spotting up deep while Giannis and these other guys go to work uh it's more just the rare times he does roll to the basket he's wide open and he's able to finish there and then whenever Giannis gets the ball as the roll man it's just going to be a dunk on the, on the other team's head uh so I, I thought that was something that uh was interesting just to, in terms of looking at their numbers um you watched their matchups against the Pacers what did you take away from that well, first, I think I think Danny might have had something on Brooke Lopez too. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to mention something small. I looked this up during during the time we've been talking, and surprisingly, the Bucks have over 200 minutes that Brooke has played without Giannis. Some of that being when he had that concussion and missed some time. And their offensive rating is basically the same as when Brooke plays with Giannis. It's 114 and a 113. And that's really surprising to me, and I think that's a testament to how much he helps their spacing and creates these seams, even if Giannis isn't on the floor. Yeah, the Lakers could have maybe used him this year, don't you think? <laughs> no, they got McGee. They're they're all set. I mean, not a problem. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, um, he he would have yeah, just been I, the perfect. He, he's guy also run, right. He, he's also an enthusiastic. Javale is also an enthusiastic floor spacer, just slightly less successful. Um. All right. I, I mean, it's weird that Lopez has kind of turned into like you know Channing Fry on steroids at this point. So I think LeBron would like that uh fit on his team quite a bit. But yeah, I wanted to talk about the Indiana matchup from Wednesday, where Indiana beat Milwaukee pretty handily and. I want to acknowledge like the the Bucks beat them earlier in the season. I think it was the second game of the season beat the Pacers, but I, I don't like that matchup for the Bucks overall. And I think they'd want to avoid that playoff matchup if they can. The Pacers are, you know, a good mid-range team. They like to take those shots with that the Bucks like to concede in the pick and roll with dropping Lopez back pretty far. And they have Miles Turner that can get hot from pick and pop. And those are looks that are easily available against the Bucks whenever you want it. And a guy like Thad Young, I thought Thad Young did a really good job against Giannis. You know, you're never going to stop him, but I thought he made life difficult on him. He's a really strong defender. He slides yeah, that, pretty well. That was the game think, where Giannis you know, famously had seven points, right? His first game back from that neck issue. Uh, it was his first game back from the neck. I don't remember the exact box score, but Giannis definitely struggled. Uh, so yeah, that that would sound accurate if it were true. And I mean, they they have other issues too. Just I mean, things got bad enough where they switched up their pick and roll coverage. They actually had Lopez meeting ball handlers out at the three point line in the second half. And I'm sure you guys have seen more bucks than me this season, but I don't remember seeing them do that much this season. And I, I think the Pacers do a good job of exploiting like heavily rotating defenses. And I usually it happens with a switch and then they have a post up with Sabonis and they, they cut well off it. Thad Young moves well off the ball and they have shooters and they're, they're passing much better lately. And so they do it that way. But if, if the Bucks are going to really crash in on the roll man and the Pacers have the ability to kick it out and they have guys that are threats. So I don't know. I, I don't like that matchup specifically for the Bucks. Is that something you guys agree with? Or do you think I'm just overreacting to one game? Oh, that's interesting. You know, I, we're going to talk a little bit more about this in the Pacers section uh you know I think it's more actually the Pacers defense uh, that can cause the Bucks uh, problem although worth noting uh, by the way since I have it in front of me Giannis had 12 points ultimately in that game but was a team worst negative 31 uh and had four turnovers and, and the Bucks uh, shot it poorly from downtown uh 11 out of 43 and the Pacers uh, were 12 out of 30 the Pacers usually don't take that many three-pointers um so I don't know. We'll see. I mean, the Bucks did handle them earlier. I mean, and the Pacers are a good team. I mean, I I, I think, but no, I I would still say I would 
when it's all said and done i would rather play the pacers than any of the teams above them and uh less like to play the pacers than any of the teams below them but that's not a surprise uh, those teams are uh, better and worse than the pacers probably uh, respectively although you know we may see the pacers get the four seed and philly get the five seed at this rate depending on the moves that philly could make yeah i'd agree with you for the most part i think the only team that i think i'd rather play if i was milwaukee might be philadelphia just because they don't have as much spacing i mean obviously they have jj Reddick, they can use off those dhos and try and pull lopez out that way but if, if Ben Simmons is running a pick and roll, they can just hang back and they can put Lopez on Embiid and post-ups. And I don't know, not that it would be an easy mass- matchup, but I think if I was Milwaukee, I would prefer to play Philadelphia over Indiana. Yeah, you know, it is right it now, is tough for Embiid defensively in that matchup with Lopez on the floor. I mean, and a lot of that, again, relates to me assuming that Philly is going to make some moves to fill out their bench, as we talked about in their section. Well, and, and something else that's a challenge there is that there isn't really a place i've talked before about the idea of putting somebody else on brooke lopez but there isn't really now that they have jimmy butler another place to hide lopez in that you can't like wilson chandler depending on who the fifth guy is i don't think that's much better i guess he's out of the primary actions a little bit more but yeah it's interesting all right thanks liam and danny and thanks also to navy federal for supporting the show they have a mission to put members first by making their financial goals the priority receive a lifetime of membership benefits to help you and your family accomplish your life missions like a full suite of financial products designed to fit your needs 24 7 live support and access to over 300 branches on or near military bases visit navyfederal.org for more information call 1-888-842-6328 or download the navy federal credit union app message and data rates may apply listening to your favorite podcast that's smart earning your degree online from southern new hampshire university that's really smart with 24 7 access to coursework no set class times and dedicated student support you can go to school when and where it works for you low online tuition means you can even do it for less and dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond join a community of learners just like you Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application.